0: Well, we have been in Ephesians in our evening uh, series, so please do come with me to Ephesians uh, and to Ephesians chapter 6. So Ephesians chapter 6, and as we, as we prepare for uh, the end of summer and going into a new season, uh, we will be in uh, Romans in the evening come September, and so we are looking forward to that. Uh, but we will finish Ephesians and then we'll move in, into Romans. But tonight, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to begin to read at verse 1. So, Ephesians chapter 6, if you're reading in a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1177. This is God's Word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exacerbate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good He does, whether He is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that it is he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. And i just going to open that in just a few moments as we make our way through and think about how do we relate between, in the working world uh, in this passage of, of Scripture.
1: Well, do let's turn to those verses that we read earlier, Ephesians 6, uh, really verses uh, 5 to 9. Just great to hear how well Livar went. Um, whenever John got that invitation to speak there, uh, we talked about it at session. Um, it was uh, a big commitment for him, and, and uh, but we wanted to really encourage him to do that, a great opportunity. And so we're delighted that that's gone well. It's been a heavy week for him. And so I thought, uh, uh, we thought I would preach twice uh, this evening or today so that we would all share some of the pain of uh, <laughs> allowing John to go away up to the north coast. So uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we're looking really at uh, slaves and masters uh, tonight. This is the last point of uh, uh, Paul's ethical teaching here Um Uh, as he talks about these three groups of people that we've been looking at. He looks at uh, the marriage relationship. He looks at the children, parent, the family relationship. And now he looks at this work relationship. And uh, Paul, as we've been saying, is working out what Christ-likeness looks like, what the spiritful life looks like, what the the worthy uh, life looks like in response to all that God has done. And these are the three areas in which he particularly uh, zooms in on always important to emphasize whenever we are looking at the Bible's ethical teaching, saying this is how you should live, uh, that it is a, as a response to what God has done. If, if uh, uh, some of us have, have come together and we're, we're trying to figure things out as far as Christianity is concerned, or we're tuning in online and we're trying to figure out what Christianity is, uh, then we, we really must uh, understand that all the the, the things that we are to do, how we are to live, is in response to what God has done. We would do you a terrible disservice if you were to think that um, just because we are talking about how we should live, that by living like this, you become a Christian. Uh, You need to see the whole letter of Ephesians says something very, very different. It says that you cannot be a Christian by being good. Uh, Good works don't lead to salvation. But having said that, It is the case that salvation must lead to good works, and that's the part of the the Bible that we are in. The Reformers sometimes said that you can't be saved by good works, but neither can you be saved without them. A genuine saving encounter with Christ involves the good works which Christ prepared in advance for us to do. So, this is part of, of, of that. We're looking at how someone who's met Jesus lives, and especially tonight, thinking about how they work in the workplace as Paul talks about slaves and masters. Now, we know that slaves and masters uh, is not a direct comparison to today's workplace. Of course, you may uh, go, be going to somewhere tomorrow where you think, no, it's exactly the way it is in my workplace. Um, we'll say more about that in a moment, but but largely uh, we're dealing with a very, very different context. But nevertheless, it is, Paul is dealing with the, the daily reality of work, uh, which for Uh, many people in the early church was that position of a slave. And this is one of the areas that Paul chooses to speak about. And he says, this is where holiness is to be seen. This is where a spiritful life is to make its mark. Uh, Not with all the people who can sort of watch us from afar and and look at our Instagram posts and think, well, you know, they, they seem to really have it together. But with those people who know us best, in our homes and in our workplaces. And of course, it's in the workplace that we are particularly well known sometimes. Some of us maybe spend more waking hours with our work colleagues than we do with uh, anybody else. They see us at our best and our worst. They see how we handle pressure and praise. They see if we are honest and reliable. And Paul is saying it is here that Christian living is to have an impact. Now, of course, we turn on the television at the moment and we hear all the latest news about strikes and pay demands and so on, and workers' rights and so on, and there are workers' rights, of course. But Paul deals here not so much with rights as with responsibilities. Uh, Not here is what you're to demand, but here is what you're to bring, here's what you're to offer. And that's basic, isn't it? That that, uh, as we've seen this uh, picture of sort of a a submission and humility runs through all of this teaching, Uh, so we see that there is a a basic giving to be worked into our hearts as believers. The gospel should turn us from being grabbers into givers, Uh, not grabbing onto our rights, but gladly outworking our responsibilities. Now, before we just jump into what what Paul is saying here to workers and to masters, uh, we need to just maybe say a word about something that sometimes comes up and has troubled Christians down through the years. And that is, what about the Bible's teaching about slavery? Why does Paul here not just sort of turn around and say, well, look, we all know that slavery is terribly wrong, and you should have nothing to do with it. Why is it not condemned out of hand? Well, think a little bit about the context. We need to understand a little about slavery in Paul's day. The the, the scholars tell us there were something like 60 million slaves in The Roman Empire, which was a large proportion of the population. In some of the big cities, a a third of the people would have been in some form of slavery. It was just baked into society at the time. And we did think, too, that that slavery takes lots and lots of different forms today, as in the ancient world. We often tend to think of slavery through the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade. And there were other ways in which slavery. It operated at this time. Uh, there were huge reforms in, in in the situation of slaves and masters going through the Roman Empire and so on. Some people have suggested that that Paul didn't want to upset that. I, I'm not sure that that's a great argument. Uh, the Keswick lecture this year was on slavery, in particular on modern slavery, uh, uh, all the forms of modern slavery that are in our world today, even in our town today, of course. And in that lecture, the chap said, I think very helpfully, that the first century world was simply not ready for a campaign against slavery any more than it was ready for a campaign against many other injustices that were hugely common within society. But at the same time, what the New Testament did was to sow the seeds of slavery's decline so that now... Slavery is seen as an evil by, by uh, just about everybody, uh, and, and we've got to admit that the church has not done this brilliantly. There were, there were many within the church that resisted the overturn of slavery uh, a few hundred years ago, uh, but nevertheless, it was these teachings in the Scriptures that some of the people like Wilberforce and so on really hung on to and stood on uh, to end the horrors of the North Atlantic slave trade. So, for example, the teaching of the New Testament that all people are made in the image of God. Or Paul teaching uh, the uh, escaped slave Onesiphorus uh, and, and uh, telling him to return to Philemon, but writing to Philemon, you can read that letter, writing to Philemon and saying, you've got to treat this uh, one slave as a brother. And that in itself just began to unravel and explode the idea that one human being could own another. Now, that's a little bit of an aside, but uh, if you are chatting with someone who's skeptical about Christianity and and bringing up things, uh, you might find some of that at least uh, to stimulate your thinking in some way. Well, what do we see here? Uh, Really, there are two calls. We've got some pictures of workplaces. Here they are. Um, I I don't know if you recognize yourself in any of those, if those look like your hands or uh, your blood pressure cuff or whatever it might be, uh, we've got a a few places that we can think of as we think about uh, the places that we're going to uh, find ourselves in perhaps through the week. What are we to see here? Well, there are basically two calls. We are to, first of all, work as to the Lord if we are workers, and we are to care for our workers if we are, as it were, bosses. Those are the the, the, the a heart of what Paul is saying here. And the first thing he says is to the, the slaves. You see from verse 5, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear with and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good He does whether he's slave or free. Now, you can see that what, what, what Paul is doing here, as he has with some of this other ethical teaching, is he just lifts the gaze of the slave. And he says, now, you, 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 you've got a boss who's standing in front of you, but I want you to, to look through that boss, as it were, behind that boss, above that boss, and you're going to see that there is another boss. There is another Lord and actually, you are not just working for that earthly master, but you are working for the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 is absolutely key. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Now, we would be well served. Most of us are workers rather than bosses, I suppose. We would be well served just to, to sit and to think about that, to, to take out a pen and paper and, and to take a moment or two in quietness and to think, what would my work look like if I, moment by moment, was conscious that I was serving the Lord and not men? What would that look like in my life? What would it look like if, if I was writing a report tomorrow and, and uh, as it were, I could imagine Jesus saying to me, "I do you just uh, let me run my eye over that before, before you hand it in. If you're making something, something's coming off the production line. Uh, Let me just do the the quality control on that before it pops off the other end of the conveyor belt. All of those sorts of things are to be in our heads. Serve wholeheartedly as if you're serving the Lord and not men. John Stott, I've quoted John Stott a lot in these last few weeks. John Stott says, "'It is possible to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ was going to eat it, or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ was going to be the honored guest. It is possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat patients, and nurses to care for them, for solicitors to help clients, shop assistants to serve customers, and accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if in each case they were serving Jesus Christ.'" So, absolutely radical, ethical teaching. So, here's the call you see to see Christ not only present in your work, so not just as we were thinking this morning that Jesus is with us in our work, but that he is, in a sense, the object of our work, the one that we are really working for. And of course, that will transform our work. It will have all sorts of spin offs. Some of them are addressed by Paul here. He says that workers are to be respectful because these slaves would have had the chance to see their masters close up. They would have known their weaknesses. And um, Very few of these slaves would have had a Christian master. Uh, that would have been the exception. And so, it would have been easy for them to have pretended to have been respectful, perhaps out of fear even, but actually going around thinking, I'm far better than they are, uh, 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 and, and to be resentful and disrespectful. But you see, if we see Christ as our ultimate master… Then you're going to see those around you and even those over you as being there somehow in some way by God's hand. Doesn't mean that everything that is done is right. Doesn't mean that we agree with every policy or or that we go along with things that are wrong. N- not at all. But it does mean that there is a basic respect in our actions and our attitudes, a desire to be able to call good what is good, to honor what we see that is positive, and a recognition that those who are over us and around us are there somehow in the providence of God. And sometimes we talk about how Christians are to be different, and so often it's about, you know, we don't do this and we don't do that. But actually, so often it is that sort of common, critical spirit that we find in the workplace in which we've got an opportunity to shine. Respectful. 1 Timothy 6, 1, Paul says, All of you who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. There's a sense in which as you go into your work tomorrow or or wherever you go, uh, there is a sense in which you are either setting uh, taking forward or, or, or taking, holding back the progress of the kingdom of God, that there's a possibility for God's work to be slandered or to be praised because of how we work. And the very fact that Paul has to do this, of course, says that it is a problem uh, because human nature uh, is human nature, and, and we are uh, human beings with human nature, and, and every person likes to criticize uh, others sometimes, especially those over us, and that was bringing the name of Christ into disrepute there's also something about working conscientiously, isn't there here? Uh, You you remember the old computer programs? You used to have a boss button, do you remember? So if you were playing Tetris, uh, you had the the, the little button up in the corner that had a big sort of yellow arrow on it or whatever it was. And if your boss came into the office, you clicked on that as quickly as you could and went back to your spreadsheet. Some of them even had dummy spreadsheets built into them so that... uh, Uh, If if somebody looked over your shoulder, it looked as if you were doing some work. And they would think you were working hard. Believe that in these days of working from home, you can go onto Amazon and uh, you can buy. uh, Apparently, there are some of the companies now that monitor your your laptop as you're working from home. And if you don't move your mouse or type something after 20 minutes or so, uh, it's logged. And you eventually get a phone call from HR. And you can buy a little thing that shakes your mouse every 15 minutes. I'll give you the dress if you, if you need to <laughs> check that out. <clears throat> but you see, this is the point. The, 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 the point is that Christians don't need something that shakes their mouth every 15 minutes. They don't need a boss button. Because Paul says, verse 6, Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Not just doing the will of God, but doing it from your heart. ESV has this beautiful uh, phrase that's quite close to the original "I service, not just doing eye service, not just doing it to be seen. No difference in your work if you're being watched or not. No one will ever know, shouldn't be the watchword of the Christian worker, because your ultimate boss is fully present everywhere and he knows. You know the stories of of, uh, some of the artists in the great European cathedrals, you know, where they paint the roofs of the the cathedrals and so on, Sistine Chapel-type places. And in some of those roofs, I've used this story before, in some of those roofs there are parts of the ceiling that cannot be seen from anywhere on the ground. No one's ever going to see it. And some of those artists lay on their back up on the scaffolding and they paint it carefully, those parts of the picture that no one would ever see. And they were asked, why are you doing that? No one's going to see that. And they would say, but, but God can see it. And we don't maybe have the same idea about the appropriateness of such paintings. But, but in that sense, they got that right, didn't they? Not just to impress others. It is for a higher audience. Your work is for a higher audience. So Christian brother or sister, if you're in a workplace, if you have a responsibility, just ask those questions. Maybe take out a piece of paper later on tonight and ask the question, what does it mean for me this week to work for the Lord? And then the second part of that is, is that we must care for our workers. There's a responsibility to care for your workers because Paul turns to masters. And there wouldn't have been, I suppose, that many masters within the church in Ephesus. But interestingly, even slaves could have slaves. And so, there were lots of people who had, to some degree, responsibility over others. And you see what they say. Verse 9, "'Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him.'" There are a few principles here for bosses, as it were, they're told to treat slaves in the same way. Uh, What is that same way? Well, the whole principle underlying these things, uh, wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters, is this mutual submission. It is uh, valuing the other person. And this is what masters are to bring into the workplace. They they, they set the tone. As one writer says, you you create that tone uh, so that people are treated the way that you would want to be treated. If you want respect, be respectful. If you want conscientiousness, then be conscientious. If you want pleasantness, model pleasantness. And I'll tell you, if you have responsibility for people, they know what sort of tone you set. They're also told here not to threaten. There are some who bully their way through the workload, isn't that right? And there are Those who, who in a master-slave situation, uh, would have found that very, very tempting. And, And Paul says, no, you forgo that, pass that by. It's not the way that you should be if you're a believer. And then the reason for all of this is given, you too have a master. You're not just a boss, you have a boss. And the thing is, you have the same master. And there's no favoritism with him. In other words, you are not more important to him than your worker is. And, of course, this was all very, very remarkable. It was this teaching which teaches the equality of people that that brought slavery uh, in that big sense to to an end, in in the sense of the world understanding that this was a very wrong thing. Uh, And the implications worked its way down through the generations, slowly, all too slowly, but nevertheless until it became untenable. But even in the shorter term, doesn't it show that the Master is accountable? He's accountable for the conditions he allowed his workers to work in. He's accountable for how they were treated when they were sick and so on. And you can just imagine these sorts of things coming into a boardroom discussion about whether this policy or that policy should be enacted. Say, well, we must really remember that we do have a Master in heaven, we are accountable. Some of us are in situations where we're able to set the tone and control the conditions perhaps to some degree, and we must remember that we're working for a greater master. Well, those are the two big things in a sense that Paul sets out in these verses as he Works out what a, a spirit filled life looks like for the believer. And, and maybe just in the few minutes that are remaining, let's just mention two or three things that we can draw out that, that help us put the whole idea of, of work within a, a helpful framework, a sort of a biblical framework. We've done that with family and with marriage and so on. We'll do it for a moment or two with work. First thing to say four, four very simple things, and they're short. Uh, <clears throat> the first thing is that the Bible treats work as a blessing. Sometimes, the way that we talk would imply that work came as a result of the fall. You know, uh, thorns and thistles and so on, wasps and work. You know, that, that's the way it sort of seems to work. But, but it's not that. Adam and Eve, before the fall, were not sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They were working. Adam names the animals. They're commissioned to work to take care of the, care of the garden, and that was all before the fall. Now, the nature of work changed after the fall. The thorns and thistles came. The frustration and the toil came. But the work itself was a design of God, a good gift of God. And in the future kingdom, when we're in glory, there'll be work. There'll be stuff to be in charge of. There'll be stuff to be done. I don't know what that stuff is. We will rule. There'll be an element of work in that. It will be entirely satisfying and pleasurable. But work itself is a gift. From God. The second thing we want to say here is that, that work can be a ministry. Certainly legitimate work can be a, a, a ministry. We, we sometimes talk about, about Christian work and secular work, and we know what we mean, and it's helpful to be able to do that. Somebody's left a Christian job to take up a secular job or vice versa. And yet, really, in some ways, that's not a very, very helpful distinction because if we are teachers or factory workers or cleaners or whatever it might be, there's a sense in which whatever we're doing can be seen as Christian work. All legitimate work can be done for the Lord, as Paul says here. It needs to be uh, legitimate. You can't smuggle stuff across the border for the Lord. Well, you can if it's Bibles, but, but not, not if it's diesel, you know. Um, but, but if it's right and lawful, it can be a ministry. And sometimes, and sometimes we're guilty of it here too, you know, of sort of just holding up the the, the, the only thing that really matters is the, is the Christian work. And we're going to say a little bit about the fact that, that, that we're going out, we're, we're, we're flying the flag for the Lord Jesus Christ five days a week in our workplace, maybe more, um, so, you know, one I remember hearing one lady put it like this. She said, "I teach a Sunday school class for half an hour, and I'm prayed for, but I teach five times as many children five days a week for six hours a day, and nobody seems to notice." Work can be a ministry if we're doing it for uh, the Lord, whether it's in a school or or wherever it might be. So, so don't think I do nothing uh, for the Lord. Uh, here we're slaves working through the week. Terrible conditions, perhaps, and yet Paul says, "Now, what you're doing, it can be for uh, the Lord. Make your work a ministry because you're there serving Him. Make your retirement a ministry because you're there serving Him. Work can be a ministry. Work can be mission. Work can be mission. I hope we see that 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 God is interested in our work. Uh, He is interested in those working relationships. He is." At work there, or and he can be, and we need to recover a sense of how God is going before us into the workplace, because work is a, a place of mission. We are, if we think of the the, the reach of, of of Hill Street, where is that happening? It is as men and women who are believers are scattered into offices and. And factory floors and and wherever it might be, all over uh, this area. And there, we're spending time with people. There, people will be saying, did you have a good weekend? What did you do? Did you get up to anything? You'll be able to ask them. They'll tell you about their family. They'll show you the photographs of the family events and so on. And they'll begin to then tell you what their hopes are and what they're afraid of. And they'll ask you the same. And as those relationships build up, what huge opportunities there are. A couple of stories just that, that, that uh, have always been helpful for me. Uh, one's by a chap called Mark Green. Mark Green uh, was speaking at Keswick this year, actually, he didn't, did some seminars. But he has been an influence to in me for some time. He went on to form the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, which we've had some involvement here with in the past. But he had worked in London in a large advertising firm. He was in PR and marketing. And he was a keen Christian, and he really felt that he should serve the Lord in some way and that he should serve Him overseas. And he went to uh, investigate looking at a, uh, a serving as a missionary in an African country, and, and, and he was uh, pretty well down that road. And, and then he began to do some further research about that particular country, and he found out that the majority of the people in that country professed to be evangelical Christians, the majority of them, more than 50%. And then he looked at his office block in London, and there were 300 people in that office block. And as far as he knew, there were only two Christians, him and another person. And he worked it out, and he realized that he had this huge mission field on his doorstep with people whose names he knew, whose families he knew. And he began to think very, very differently about how he walked into that office on a Monday morning. He did Bible studies for his friends. He He prayed for people and then with people. Eventually, he wrote a a book called Thank God It's Monday. Beautiful little book published by Scripture Union. Really helpful if you're a Christian in the workplace. Work as a mission field. And I have talked to so many people who have asked them, tell us us a bit bit about your journey. How did you become a Christian? And they said, well, you know, I didn't really have much background, but there was this guy at work or there was this girl at work, and we got talking, and here I am. Work as a mission. And then remember the worker. All of these things need to be in the context of what Jesus has done for us. And let's just think about this. You know, I I don't know about you, but I rarely have a sense that my work is done, that the list might be fulfilled, that the boxes might be ticked, but I know that there's always room for improvement or more that we could achieve. And yet, there is one worker who did a perfect work and a finished work. Jesus once said this, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing, testifies that the Father has sent me. He's the one who perfectly did the Father's work. He came to work out the Father's plan to save us. And when we have grasped that, and when we've seen what He has done for us, in the particular nature of that work for us, the infinite demands that were on him, which he fully satisfied. It's impeccable standards met. Then we're set free because our work at that point is not an idol. It's not what we're living for. Lots of people driven by that today. Some of the people that you sit beside tomorrow will be driven by that. It will define them. But you're defined by something else. You're defined by the worker who came and did a perfect work for you and has now set you free to live for him so that your work doesn't consume you, but becomes that place where you can serve him. You can see it as a gift and as a mission, as a ministry, and you can do it all for him. He has done this perfect work perfectly so that you would benefit, so that you can live for him wherever you are, and your work in your home, in your marriage, in your family, in your neighborhood. And Paul would say, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord.